We're in a, a study of the book of Romans, which I hope you are aware of. And I also hope that you were able to either download or print out or whatever you do with the notes. Uh, a lot of the classes that we've had, that's not quite as important. But uh, for the book of Romans, it's, it's, I think, kind of important. Because what I tried to do in, in putting the outline together was trace in, in an outline form trace kind of the argument Paul's making, and then if you want to fill in notes or just at least clarify some of the things as we go to the text. So uh, it's really important to try to get that. We're in uh, chapter one. We spent most of the, well, not most, we spent all of last time dealing with the introduction, getting a lot of the key terms and themes of the book nailed down, and we did the first seven verses, which is without question, arguably, the most complex and detailed introduction or salutation or greeting in any of Paul's 13 letters. We spent a lot of time on that. Now, verses 8 through 10, uh, he, he, Paul, just does what he often does. He expresses thanksgiving to the Lord for the Roman churches. As I said last time from chapter 16, we know that there were five house churches in Rome. He, we'll talk about that when we get to the end of the book uh, in, in a year or so, however long it takes to get through the book. So these are the churches of Rome, and he says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's really a remarkable statement, isn't it? If Paul were writing to you, now that's silly because 2,000 years ago, but if Paul were writing to you, and he would say, I thank the Lord well, your faith, which is being proclaimed throughout all the world, would he say that of you? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but what I'm trying to get you to see is this is an extraordinary statement that these Roman churches were known for their faith. And it isn't, it isn't this, this saving faith. It's the living by faith. They're walking by faith. These are men and women of faith in the center of the Roman Empire. And then he goes on in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So <coughs> in this prayer, that he is summarizing. It's a prayer of thankfulness for their faith. And then it's almost like he has to put his hand on the Bible and say, I really mean this. Because he says in verse six, verse, verse 9, for God is my witness. In other words, I'm not lying. I'm just not saying this off the cuff. This isn't a uh, superficial or shallow comment. I really mean this. God's my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. And <clears throat> that's in and of itself a little bit uh, of a comment that needs discussion in my spirit or with my spirit or in the, in the strength of my spirit. In other words, Paul is talking about, I think, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. That the spirit who indwells him verifies that testimony in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer. 
And this is something that Paul says a lot. You might remember a couple of years ago, we studied the Thessalonian letters. And Paul says, I am constantly thanking the Lord for you. Night and day, I pray for you. And it always is curious to me. I'd like to know a little bit about Paul's prayer life. Doesn't he sleep night and day, I pray? I think it just means simply, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. In other words, Paul is in that mode, if you will, of just talking to the Lord about a lot of things. And every time the Lord brings to his mind the, the Roman churches, he prays for them. And that's just that's a wonderful affirmation of two things. One, his closeness to God. And two, his passion for the people whom he's serving. And I would just, and I'm sure this isn't the first time you've ever heard this, but I would encourage you, if, you know, in your, just your day-by-day living, if a name or a person comes to mind, pray for them. It doesn't have to be, you know, a five-minute prayer. It's a straight-hour prayer. And I think it's important for us in our walk with the Lord to be sensitive to that because he is in my spirit. That's that spiritual aspect of Paul's walk with God, where the Holy Spirit's energizing and empowering him, it's affecting and informing his prayer life. Jeff, was he known as camel knees? Is that Paul? That's usually that's John. Oh, that's John. That's John often that is is given that nickname. But then he he adds something else to his prayer, asking that somehow by God's will, it's up to the Lord that I may last succeed in coming to you. Now, we know this from some other parts of Paul's letters, but I mentioned that later, I'm going to quickly review it again. Paul's strategy was to plant key churches in the eastern Mediterranean and then shift to planting key churches in the western Mediterranean, and on his way to do that, he's going to go to Rome, which is the center of the empire, center of the Mediterranean Sea, and so on. So we just see again, his desire was to see these people, to come to them, and so on. Then, in verses 11 through 15, he surfaces three reasons for why he's writing these letters. So he goes on, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, um, the issue there is, what does he mean by that, to impart some spiritual gift to them? And so he doesn't say, he doesn't identify it, he doesn't articulate what the gift is, he doesn't itemize what the gift is, because as you know, there are, there are listings of the spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament, First Corinthians 12, Romans 14, which we'll study many months from now, Ephesians 4, for example. So we don't know what he's talking about, to impart some kind of spiritual gift to them. It certainly, it certainly at least means this. Roman, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 makes this very clear. Spiritual gifts are given by the Lord to edify the body of Christ. They're not given for you and me to feel warm fuzzies and elevate ourselves and feel pride because we have this spiritual gift. God gives a spiritual gift, that's a a supernatural enablement for service, a spiritual gift to edify the body. So whatever Paul means by this, it is I want to impart, encourage, enable you to further edify the body of Christ. 
And that is something that, of course, an apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles, is doing. He's interested in them, the churches at Rome, mutually encouraging and edifying one another through their spiritual gifts. Does that make sense? So next week on the quiz, when I ask, what is a spiritual gift? You will say, a supernatural enablement for service to edify the body. That will be your answer. Okay? And so that whatever he meant by that, all he's saying is, I want to, I want to, I want to enable and be the channel from the Spirit for you to be edifying and encouraging and enabling one another. Spiritual gifts are never for our self-edification, for our self-elevation. They are for others. Secondly, in verse 12, he says, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And that's, that's really a wonderful, wonderful thought. And I think all of that's one of the things I think we can see as we get to know each other and fellowship with one another. We're, we're mutually encouraged by one another's faith. As we talk about what the Lord has done in our lives or what, what, he's, what we're praying about and we see how God has answered our prayers, we're encouraged by one another's faith. I mean, to, to, to walk in loving obedience with the Lord, a, a walk of faith, is encouraging. It is encouraging for others to see that. that. That is one of the things that the body of Christ, the church, is supposed to do. We gather together normally on a Sunday. We fellowship with one another. But our faith is built up and encouraged as we see brothers and sisters walking in faith with the Lord. And all Paul is saying is, I just can't wait to sit down and we tell the stories of God's work on our lives. And we're mutually encouraged and built up and edified by seeing a walk of faith. Remember what 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Book of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11. 1. So faith is the key element of our walk with the Lord. And we are encouraged and built up when we see the evidence of one another's faith. And then finally, he says, in verse 13, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, you'll note there I read in the ESV translation, They've translated that Greek word in verse 14 to the Greeks and to barbarians. That's literally what the Greek word is. But a, he's using a term that was used in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Barbarians were non-Greeks. Because the Greek world looked at everybody that's not a Greek as a barbarian. Now, in the first century, barbarian kind of had a little bit of a different nuance than it does today. When you and I... Uh, think of a barbarian, we think of like Attila the Hun in the fourth 400s attacking Rome. It's just not quite the same. It's, a, it's more of an ethnic denominating uh, term. You're a non-Greek, you're a barbarian, because obviously we Greeks are superior. 
So a non-Greek is inferior to the Greeks. And so Paul chooses to use that term because these are Greco-Roman people living in the center of the empire. They would know what he's talking about. That the gospel is for everyone, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. And so Paul's using, it's called merism, Paul's using these two extremes, Greeks and non-Greeks, and wise and foolish people. The Bible, the gospel's for everyone. But he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Now immediately, because you're all thinking, inquisitive, always processing truth, you would be asking, well, I thought they already heard the gospel. You got five church, house churches there. They already heard the gospel. They've already received the gospel. So remember, the gospel is not just hearing what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and so on. It's also the call to the life of walking in faith. Let's review. The gospel, salvation, is justification, sanctification, glorification. That's the whole gospel that's preached. It's the event of putting your faith in Christ. It's that process of walking with the Lord as he transforms us into the image of his son. And it's the promise he's coming back for us when we receive <coughs> our new resurrected glorified bodies. That's the gospel. It's the holistic gospel. So Paul is saying, I really, I just can't wait. I'm eager to tell you the whole story again. Those of you who are in Rome. Now, if I received that letter from Paul, I'd say, Man, Paul, come. I can't wait for you to come. All these three great things, spiritual gifts, mutual encouragement. I'm going to share with you more in depth about the nature of the gospel. Yes, please. And so he really leads into that in verse 9 when he says, with my spirit in the gospel of his son, meaning the new covenant versus the law. That's right. That's exactly right. Yep. All right. Amen. Now you're ready. What we are about to start, you must have your thinking caps on. Because now we're getting in this section, verse 16 and 17, to the thesis of the book of Romans. He's going to introduce the primary theme of this book. He's going to introduce the language that is a part of the thesis of this book. And if you miss this, you miss what's going to be happening at least in the next three chapters, if not the next seven chapters. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now that immediately is kicking in or keying in from verse 15 where he talked about the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of it. Now, it's, it's interesting. Why does he say it that way? I mean, it's like you would say, well, duh, of course you're not ashamed of it. You're Paul. But what, he, what he's really saying here is this, this gospel is not to be confessed publicly with fear. It's not to be confessed, okay, I'm supposed to do this. All right, I'll do it. That's not how Paul is approaching this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's not something that 
I do reluctantly. It's not something I'm coerced into doing. This is to be confessed publicly. This is to be championed publicly. It's about God's salvation. And he then explains this. Why is he not ashamed of it? Why is it, why is it so central that it be publicly confessed and championed? Because it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is about the power of God for salvation to the Jews. Is that what it says? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, all sorts of degree. So, <coughs> I'm sorry, I still have the residue of this. My doctor said it will take three weeks. I have a week and a half to go yet. So I'm better, as you already probably have noticed. It's the power of God to everyone. That's radical. That was a radical statement, that little, that little infinitive there, to everyone. Because if you are a Jew living in Rome, you're hearing this, because your thoughts are the Abrahamic covenant, the chosen people of God, and so on. The gospel is for everyone. Genesis 12, 3. Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. A blessing of salvation. It has come to everyone who believes. And this is the, this is the order of God's gospel revelation. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember, Greek would be the term non-Jews. In other words, everybody else. But this is, again, it's, it, for you and me, we read this, and we're so used to this language, we're so used to reading for the Baptist, but in the first century, this, this was a radical, revolutionary statement. The power of God. For salvation. Only God can do this. Everyone. Jew first and the Greek. For in it. Now that's a neuter pronoun. What's the it referring to? What's the antecedent? The gospel. For in it. The righteousness of God is revealed. In other words. The gospel of salvation. Reveals something. It reveals something about God. The gospel is revelatory. It is revealing truth about God. The gospel is revelatory in that it is revealing an attribute of God, his righteousness. Our God is a righteous God. At the R.C. Sproul used to say before he died, at the center of God's essence, is absolute, pure holiness and righteousness. Paul is saying that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals his nature. It reveals his character. Now, that is going to really be important to hang on to as we start in verse 18 and go through the end of, not quite the end, but verse 20 of chapter 3. Because Paul has to demonstrate if God is righteous, then everyone who does not live up to his standard will be a victim of his wrath. 
Because the gospel not only reveals the righteousness of God, it reveals the wrath of God. We'll see how, how does God bridge that? How does he deal with it? I'll get to that in just a minute. But look at what he says again in verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Ah, he's interjecting something. Our response to the gospel, our response to the character of God revealed in the gospel is a life of faith. And he uses, it's a little euphemism, he uses a little a, a, a little funny way of saying it, from faith to faith. Faith begins it, faith ends it. It's a life of faith. So the gospel, now listen, it's really put your thinking caps on as we're working through these verses. The gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, his holy character, his essence, who he is. And we respond to that gospel in faith. We believe what the gospel is saying about God. We, re- we believe what the gospel is saying about us, and we respond in faith. And then he goes back into the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, pulls it out of the Old Testament and brings it here. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's really interesting because now he says the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel as a part of the content of the gospel, and we respond, and we become righteous. Because he says, as he quotes from back in 2.4, the righteous live by faith. Or some of your translations might have the just live by faith. They're interchangeable words. You bring the dikaisune in from Greek into English, it can be just or righteous. It has the same meaning. So he's saying... The response to the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, is faith. And as you respond to the gospel in faith, you become righteous. But he says, the righteous, the just, live by faith. Present tense, present continuous. The just, the righteous live by faith. The event and the process. Justification, sanctification. Those who have responded in faith are declared righteous and they begin a life of faith. So what Paul has done here in just Two verses is dumped a tremendous amount of doctrine into two loaded verses that he will unpack for the rest, not the the whole book, for the next six chapters. He's going to unpack all this for us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it's for everyone. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God 
his character, his essence. And we respond to that gospel by faith, a life of faith. Because just as Habakkuk said about 589 B.C., when Habakkuk wrote his little, little prophecy, the righteous of God, the just of God, live by faith. It's a life of faith. So he's introduced the themes. Now he's got to explain all this. He's got to explain why the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel also demands the wrath of God. But if faith is the response to the righteousness of God, how do we how do we avoid the wrath of God? Because I'm a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God. How do I avoid this? Because the next section, 118 through 320, is about the wrath of God. Because the righteousness of God demands the wrath of God. Because God hates sin. God will have nothing to do with sin. So how's God going to solve this problem we have? It reveals his righteousness, but we're sinners, but by faith we become righteous. How does this work? Paul, you got to explain that. That's what he's going to do in the rest of the book. Now, are you with me? Do you understand? He's introducing these key themes in just two verses. But you see, you see, as he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, you see the thesis, the just, the righteous, live by faith. Not works, not the law, not meriting, not earning it, not deserving it. They live by faith. So righteousness of God and faith have to be brought together. How are they brought together? How is this possible? How does God do this? All right, now, we spent almost a half hour on a few verses. Are you with me? Did everybody, any questions, clarification? So this is a tangent. He's talking about to get to the point where we walk it's not something that we can't reach. Because, verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation. God's going to do all this. I mean, this, he has to explain this. The power of God for salvation. Well, what does that mean? That's a wonderful phrase. We say, I'm into it. What does it mean? You've got to explain it. He's going to do that. But he's also revealed to us, helped us to understand, that the gospel reveals the character of God, his righteousness. And as his righteousness is revealed, this is what verse 18 is going to start, it's also going to mean you have to talk about his wrath. Because we're sinners. We deserve his wrath. How does God solve that problem? That's coming up, chapter 3. Okay, righteousness of God, faith, the just live by faith. There are three things that are injected in these two verses. <clears throat> now, since everybody's silent, that means you either really get what I've been trying to explain from Paul, or you have absolutely no idea how you're going to frame a question and you're so lost, but I'm going to assume you're with me. Now, what do you good. Okay, good. Now, Notice, <laughs> notice verse 18, 
begins with F-O-R, for. In Greek, it's a gar. It's a very, very important structural marker. Righteous live by faith. Righteousness of God is revealed. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed. So we see two things. Verse 6, 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Two revelations. And they're, they're, they're like opposites, <laughs> but they're not opposites. The righteousness of God insists upon the wrath of God. Do you understand that sentence? The righteousness of God demands a discussion about the wrath of God. They're not juxtaposed. They're not opposites. They're inextricably linked. Because God is righteous, and we're not. Paul's going to do that in chapter 3, but Paul's going to have to explain, how does God bridge that gap? Where he's righteous, perfect, and holy, and I'm not, and yet he's going to make me righteous. How does he do that? Well, what Paul first has to do, now listen, this is a very, very important sentence. He has to demonstrate the universal condemnation of every human being. Got it? He has to demonstrate the universal condemnation of every human being. That every single human being deserves the wrath of God. But you know, and I assume all of you in this room and all of you online, you have experienced the grace of God and you are not facing his wrath. You're facing eternal life with him. How does God do that? But he first has to, he has to make his case. Why does every human being stand condemned before God? Here's the simple answer. Because they have rejected his revelation to them. How has God revealed himself to humanity? First of all, he's revealed himself to humanity in his creation. Chapter 118 through 34. Secondly, he's revealed himself in human conscience. Chapter 2, 1 through 16. Then he's revealed himself in his moral law. And then finally, he's revealed himself in Jesus. In Jesus. Creation, conscience, moral law, Jesus. They're the four revelations of God. This is really important because, meaning what we're about to start in 118, Paul has to demonstrate that the righteousness of God demands the wrath of God. And every human being deserves God's wrath. Now, as you know, in his grace, he offers a way in which we can have salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. How does God do that? Well, that's coming up. But he has to show <coughs> the universal condemnation of all humanity. So let's begin. So the first part now, it goes from 118. It starts with chapter 1, verse 18. 
near the end of the chapter, which is what, verse 32 or 33 or whatever. For the wrath of God is revealed. <clears throat> Again, parallel, righteousness of God revealed, 17. 18, the wrath of God revealed, 18, against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here you have a righteous, perfect, holy God, and you have an unrighteous, ungodly humanity. And what have they done with the truth that God's revealed? What's the verb he uses? Suppressed. What does suppress mean? Hidden. Hidden. A little stronger to suppress something. Rejected. What? Inhibit. Inhibit. To be stronger than that. Hold back. Mute. All right. I mean, you're you're rendering it inoperative in your life. You are you are pushing it down, pressing it down to where it is no longer relevant in your life. You don't want anything to do with it. You suppress the truth is revealed. What Paul has to explain is, was it clear? Did you maybe miss it? Did you, did you not understand it? No. What Paul's going to do in, in now from verse 19 all the way through verse 20 of chapter 3 is he's going to show how humanity has just suppressed truth after truth after truth after truth after truth by God. And Paul will say, such that they are without excuse. No one will ever stand before God at the great white throne and say, I never knew about you. You never told me about yourself. And God's going to say, really, sit down. He's going to walk, and I, I don't know if it'll happen like this, but he's going to walk them through. Humanity has enough evidence that there is a God. But Paul says they've taken the revelation, the truth that God's revealed about himself, his character's nature, etc., and suppressed it, tramped it down, crushed it, so that it's no longer relative, relevant in their lives. So our faith can be held. And the denial of the truth by those who refuse the gospel can also, you know, oh, absolutely, grow stronger, absolutely, stronger, so that they are so jaded over mm -hmm. they don't even consider it. And the, the scriptures use the phrase in both the Old and the New Testament of a hardening of the human heart, where it is so encrusted and so thick that it is only the Holy Spirit that can break through that. That happened. Yeah, that's what God, that's exactly right. All right, now, again, verse 18, <coughs> let's say it about the fifth time. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but the wrath of God is also revealed. Why? The unrighteous, ungodly suppress the truth he's revealed. Now, Paul has to explain this. What do you mean by this, Paul? For <clears throat> what can be known about God, a little for there, I'm explaining it. As Paul said, I want to explain this now. I want to explain what I mean by this. That human beings, unrighteous, ungodly human beings, 
suppress the truth. What does that mean, they suppress the truth? For what we known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. What do you mean, Paul? He's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's the first revelation of God, his creation, his creative power, what he has made. And Paul says in verse 20, you learn about his eternal power. You learn about his divine nature. And that, in other words, and I think this is correct, from Paul's perspective, you look at the created world, and it is impossible for you to conclude this just happened. This is the product of randomness. It begs power. It begs divine nature as an explanation. Theologians call this the general revelation of God. Peggy and I were reading in our devotional time on Monday. This is what we read. In creation, we see evidence of God's glory, as well as all aspects of who God is. When we observe the strength of the wind or the roar of the rushing water, creation showcases God's power. His power is evident in the ordering of the seasons, in the directing of the weather, in the overseeing of the cosmos, in the sustaining life of all living creatures on earth. Creation is a means also by which we experience God's blessing. He blesses us with food, with water. Everything we have is sustained by him. Creation is evidence of who our creator God is, revealing his character, his love, and his constant care for us. But what did Paul say? Humanity suppresses that truth. There's got to be another explanation. It's chance. It's randomness. It's, a, it's an impersonal force called natural selection. There is no divine order or design. It just happens. My grandson is now eight days old. And I've seen him quite a few times since he was born. I look at him. There's no way that's a chance. There's no way that's just a, a, a random ordering cosmic accident of the universe. No. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And a baby begs a creator. Paul says, suppress the truth. Look at what he said. The end of verse 20. They are without excuse. No one, no one will stand before God at a great white throne and say, I never knew about you. I had no evidence that you existed. 
I didn't know anything about your character. What did Paul just say? Creation is to lead us to God. It doesn't save. Salvation doesn't come by believing God is creator, but it's the first step. The Bible makes it very clear. As we respond to God's revelation, he gives us more revelation. So this is, <coughs> excuse me, this is the unconscionable aspect of a pure evolutionary hypothesis where you try to erase God from the equation. Paul's saying you can't do that. It is impossible to do that. If you're going to be intellectually honest, you must reach the conclusion someone explains this physical world. Doesn't necessarily have to involve Jesus Christ. That's common. But you cannot embrace a pure materialistic, naturalistic explanation. You just can't do it. <clears throat> I did my first master's degree at Lehigh University, at Lehigh University of Pennsylvania. There is a professor of microbiology there named Michael Behe. He's an accredited scientist, tenured. He came to the conclusion 17 years ago that the irreducible complexity of the cell begs for a designer. And he started writing a series of books about this. Well, the scientific community isn't really excited about this guy because he is an tenured professor, well-known scientist, published all kinds of studies and books, but he's reached a conclusion. He's become a Christian. But it started with his study of the cell. And in his first little book, Darwin's Black Box, he argues for the irreducible complexity of the cell, any cell, human cell, or the cell of a raccoon, the cell of my favorite animal, the squirrel, or anything, begs for a designer. And that's what started him on that spiritual track to where he embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior. But you see, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. God's creation should lead you to him. Because it tells you something about his power, tells you something about his nature. But what has humanity done? Suppress the truth. Now he's going to, it's 1230 already. He's, He's going to explain, well, what, what has humanity done with this truth? Well, that's what he's going to explain. So are you with me so far? James Kennedy has a series of tapes uh, he's gone now that uh, deals with cell and the molecular makeup. And when it's magnified several times over, it's like a fine piece of machinery working in a system. And that's a single cell. Yeah, I'm wondering if he didn't get that from Michael Behe. He could have. Because Behe has been the guy that has really championed this yeah. in, in molecular biology. It's a fantastic. The, the Darwin's box, black box is. is Does he produce anything? Who? Behe? Yeah, his book. That's name Darwin's Black Box. He's written a series of books, but that's his first book. And that, oh my, that's probably 18 years old. I mean, almost 20 years old. But it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. It's on Amazon. Huh? It's on Amazon. Is it? Okay. It's, so it's still in print. Good, good. Red always looks up the books that I recommend. So, yep, got it. 
It, okay, it's really, it's really a good book. And again, I mean, he's writing, he's writing from the perspective of a scientist, just saying you cannot, because part of the argument he makes, and I better not get into this, but it, it, he, he, it's like a machine. He says you take one little part out of that, this thing ain't going to work, which means life's impossible. And he says that's just mathematically, for this to be a product of chance is just mathematically ridiculous. You're not being intellectually honest if that's what you argue. So anyway, that's a little bit beyond Paul, but I, I hope it's exciting to study that stuff. So what has humanity done? They've suppressed the truth. Now they distort the truth. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, what does that mean? They don't know God. How do they know about God? It's revelation in nature. So they knew God. There has to be a creator. There has to be a designer. This can't be a product of sin. Okay. Well, they knew God. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. This is a great sentence. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Paul is using the Greek argument from the highest to the lowest. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worship created things. What's the word for that? Idolatry. Instead of worshiping the creator, they knew God. His general revelation in nature is truth. <laughs> it tells you about his power. It tells you about his nature. They know this. It's there. But they suppress it, refuse to honor him, refuse to give thanks to him for his provision, his care, his daily sustenance. Then they become futile. Futile means vain, empty, without any meaning. And you're thinking, they think they're wise. They became fools. And they exchange the glory of the, that word exchange is a really important word in chapter one. You see that again. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, as Fred correctly said, idolatry. Make statues of other human beings. Statues of birds and animals. Think of Egypt. Ancient Egypt, they worship. Their gods all had the head of an animal. Every one of them. That was a crazy polytheistic system they put together. And people who would hear that, or excuse me, people who would read this in the first century, that's ancient Egypt. That's what Cleopatra did, because that was in their mind, because Cleopatra, although she was Greek and had shacked up with Mark Antony and all that, her stuff was all over Rome. That's what they did. Why didn't they go to animals? Yeah, well, each... Each animal, each part of the physical world had a god. And so the, the, and, and when you study the ten plagues that God's, uh, God of Israel pours out, he is attacking every one of the key gods of ancient Egypt. <coughs> and um, each one is associated, the god, the, the, god, uh, the god who's associated with the Nile will have the head of a frog. I mean, it's just, that's how they associate 
the physical creatures that represent something that's key to our life, and it has a human body with the head of an animal, or or a, or a uh, actually even an insect. The one is a god of fly, right. which is the head of a fly. It's ridiculous, but that's that. I think would have been in their mind. That's ancient Egypt, and as you know, ancient Greece uh, and, and Rome did too. They worshipped their mighty gods, which were powerful supermen. They looked like men, except they were stronger. But the problem was, the gods of the Greco-Roman world had the same problems and vices you and I have. They lusted after a woman. They lied. They were deceitful. They shacked up with and had many, many affairs. That's, they were their gods. And the Greco-Roman world was just collapsing because they had no moral, ethical system. That's why Plato and Aristotle come along and say, this system doesn't work. We have to put an ethical system together, which is what Aristotle did in his great book on ethics. The, Gre the Greco-Roman gods don't give us a way to live because we don't follow them. They just are powerful. When we don't appease them, they're going to make our life miserable. But they don't show us how to live. See, when Christianity walks into that world, it's a fantastic message to say. We know the God who created everything, and his moral ethical standards are revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. You can have a relationship with him. Show you how to live. Well, anyway. Okay? No, those current countries, China, the leaders of China, the leaders of Russia, might be somewhat analogous to the Egyptian leaders denying God. Well, uh, Russia today is very deeply committed to Russian Orthodox Church. They're no longer atheist. But China is officially atheist. Yes. The churches are active, I know, in China. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now, so you have the revelation of God suppressed, verses 19 and 20. You have the revelation of God distorted, verse 21 through 23. How does God respond to that? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, or some of your translations would have gave them over. So how does God respond to this? Gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, there's that key word, we saw it in verse 23, it's one of the key words of chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Or couldn't help himself, this little doxology. Now, this is really important. We're, we're not going to get all three of these parts. We're going to get the first part done. They suppress the truth. They distort the truth. So God allows the natural consequences of that rejection to work itself out. Now, the, the Greek language, I read from the ESV translation, verse 24, God gave them up. Some translations gave them over. What does that mean? God is allowing the natural consequences of that suppression and distortion of his truth to work themselves out into idolatry. Why? Because they exchanged the truth for a lie. And the lie is the lie of idolatry. So the first natural consequence of the suppression 
and distortion of God's truth revealed in creation is idolatry. God allows that. God doesn't cause it, but this is the natural consequence. You reject my revelation. You distort my revelation. There will be a consequence to that. And the consequence is idolatry. You end up worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. You know, it's very interesting when you study you go to a typical university today, they will say, well, humanity started with animism. And then they became polytheists. And then they became enotheists. And then they became monotheists. And then we, of course, the sophisticated ones, we have found the truth, we're atheists. And this is the history of religion in the human race. Go from animism, which is just worshiping forces of nature kind of thing, up to modern day atheism. But monotheism is a recent development in history. What is Paul just telling us? The real history is humanity starts with monotheism. And there is a true God and fall into polytheism and animism. In other words, this is evidence of the suppression and distortion of God's truth. This is really what happened in the human race. It's not this crazy stuff. It's this. Paul just explained it to us. The history of the human race is falling into a polytheistic idolatry where you're worshiping the forces of nature and created things, and you make idols of them. You can't explain... You can't explain the, the storms that, that, that destroy your crops and everything. Well, it's a God of the storms, and when we don't appease him, he gets angry and starts throwing lightning bolts at us. We're going to call him Zeus or your Canaanites. We, we, we are so dependent on agriculture, and we, we have to appease the God who fertilizes the earth. We're going to call him Baal. Baal. And, and he fertilizes every spring the ground with his semen. So we go in and we mimic him in the prostitutes and, and, and corrupt idolatry of temple prostitutes in the temples of Baal all over Canaan. Paul just explained how that happened. The truth about God is revealed in his creation. But instead of accepting it, suppress it, and then distort it into idolatry. And the horrors of human idolatry as they seek to appease these stones and pieces of wood that they say are their gods. Instead of worshiping the God who's provided everything, they accept the lie and worship the created thing. So the first, the first response of God going to give you over to the natural consequences of your rejection of my truth, idolatry.
There are two more consequences. If you want to study them, you got to come back next week. But I want to tell you, man, what we're going to study the rest of chapter one. It's like we're reading the newspaper about the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an ama it's amazing. This is almost like we're reading about the United States. Because the United States of America, the broad stroke statement, but the United States of America is suppressing and distorting the revelation of God. And God is allowing the natural consequence of that rejection to work themselves out. Okay? Question. Yes. Uh, I don't know who said that. Go ahead. Woody. Yes, Woody. So, okay, so this, uh, all these guys, uh, <laughs> they give their hearts to impurity and dishonoring their bodies and all that. And, and, uh, yes. And uh, worship the creatures. And um, if any of them had at one time started to believe, would they still be um, uh, g given up by God? Well, I don't think so, Woody. I mean, you're asking a very broad question there, but when a human being responds to the truth about God, whether it's in creation, conscience, his moral law, or whatever, God, God then gives them more truth, gives them more revelation to respond to. So in other words, it, it, instead of suppressing and, and distorting the truth, we respond to the truth, and God, that's what God wants to see, Woody. God wants to see his creatures responding to his revelation, and he sends more revelation so that they can come into a personal relationship with him. So, I mean, God, God is doing everything he possibly can to make it clear to humanity, I'm here and I'm not silent. Respond to me. But as we just learned, not every human being has done that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Okay. All right. I've got to go, guys. So I'm going to pray here. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful book of Romans. It's challenging for us because we really have to work through clarity of what Paul's arguing, step by step by step. But it is amazingly relevant for 2022. So as we study this together, we may be edified, we may be encouraged. But Lord, also may we come again to an understanding of how wonderful and majestic and glorious you are. You have not left yourself without a witness. Your witness is creation. Your witness is human conscience. Your witness is your moral law. And of course, your witness is Jesus. You've given adequate revelation for humanity to come to deal with their unrighteousness and godliness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've already learned. Well, Lord, thank you for the privilege we have of studying your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. May we seek to represent you well in all we say and do, for we are your ambassadors in this dark world. We want to represent you well. Help these men to be strong men of faith. Commit each one to you in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.